Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Andrew Petrosoniak, is an emergency physician based in Canada. In this conversation, we discuss what could be done to improve outcomes for patients in emergency departments and generally to improve the experience of visiting what are often extraordinarily busy places. Here to tell his story is Andrew Petrosoniak. Andrew, you're very welcome to this call. I'm delighted that an emergency physician with the kind of time pressures that you're experiencing made time to speak with me today. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks for uh, inviting me, Moyes. I want to start where we began this conversation, and that is the whole business of emergency medicine. The world has gone through upheaval as a result of the pandemic, and the pressures on emergency departments have been huge. So before we talk about your current life, what possessed you to go into emergency medicine in the first place? Yeah, I think when I started you know, over 15 years ago in my path in medicine, I think emergency medicine did look a little different than it does now. I, you know, we've now been subject to a pandemic. I, I, I don't know why I was originally drawn there, just something when I did my first rotation, it just was something that captivated me. I'm, I'm somebody that does like to keep, you know, keep looking for new and interesting things. And my attention is easily diverted and the emergency department does allow you to prosper in a place like that. I guess I never really found a particular organ that I was, you know, passionate about, but I found that I was passionate about all organs and and even bones and and everything that sort of came in. And so that, you know, I think a lot of emergency physicians would probably give you a kind of a similar answer. But in that, I, I really became interested in the resuscitation piece. And making a difference under sort of the most critical and intense circumstances. And I don't think I knew it at the time, but I guess I'm quite okay with uncertainty. I now think and study uncertainty and how people make decisions. And so looking back, I guess that was something I didn't know about myself, but when I look back, I think that's kind of what I was okay with. I look at my peers who did other specialties and uncertainty isn't something that, you know, you experience as often in other subspecialties. You know, if a, a cardiologist will, they'll know that the patient has been referred for a certain particular investigation. We're going to do a cath and if there's plaque, we're going to stent or we're going to look for a particular etiology for shortness of breath. But I was particularly interested in in uncertainty and making diagnoses, but then also rapidly stabilizing patients. In some ways, that answer resonates with me because as a family physician, similarly, I live with uncertainty all the time. The difference between us is that I am not surrounded by whiz-bang machines that allow me to make a diagnosis in quite the same way as you are. But the public I think now recognizes that the, the family medicine and particularly emergency departments are the heat sink of the healthcare system. When the pressure is on, it's at its greatest in these places because of the demand for K 
care in a situation where you are the first doctor that sees a patient in their illness trajectory. Over the years, how have you managed to negotiate that feeling of being constantly under pressure? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think our training does a very good job of kind of helping us along with that. I think that very early on, you if you decide to choose emergency medicine, you select for a pressure situation in terms of not, and, and the vast majority of, you know, it's not like the television shows where everything is so interesting and and amazing at all times. I mean, the pressures are different. The pressures that I experience are often system-based pressures. Occasionally, there are resuscitations that really, that's why you kind of get up in the morning. You look back and you think, this is why I do it. I don't really do it for managing bed situations and lack of capacity and space within a healthcare system. I mean, that's not why I got into this. But the pressure situation, I think we learn how to manage a team. We learn how to navigate uncertainty. We learn how to toggle between teams where we're in sort of a brainstorming mode of a patient is somewhat stable. We have some time to rapidly toggling to a situation where there is no time. We needed clear directives from a team lead. And those skills, I think I've built over time. I, I'm not only do emergency medicine, but I, I specialize in trauma care. So I take care of trauma patients, uh, critically injured patients that get sent to our hospital specifically for that care. And, and I spend the first couple of hours with them. And so that pressure is often there and will expose itself periodically through the patient's trajectory where you think everything's okay and then suddenly it's not. And I think that most of that, you know, or a lot of that comes from debriefing, speaking with other colleagues, how would you do things in certain situations, reflecting on your own practice, keeping up with literature and practice. I mean, we, we just completed about nine hours of skills training two weeks ago that, that we run every year for our, both our docs, our staff physicians, as well as our residents and our nurses. Super intense and, and rare procedures, all the things that we spend time thinking about and training about that rarely happen, but when they do, they really put a lot of pressure on you to perform. And I think that with proper training, proper team training, proper insights, you know, you really can uh, achieve quite a high level of performance. Emergency departments really do make a difference to the lives of people. And I want to focus on the people who serve in those places. Uncertainty, not only in terms of what's going to walk in through the door. Is this going to be myocardial infarction or is this someone who's got dyspepsia? We just do not know until you make a proper assessment of that patient. But on top of that, you've got the uncertainty of the numbers who are going to walk through the door. So on any one day, there isn't a list that says you will see 12 patients in X number of hours. You know, that would be a lovely thing, wouldn't it? 12 patients. But you, got, you may see 50. You may see two patients. You just don't know. And on top of that, you've got the whole issue of your knowledge base having to keep up with a whole bunch of potentially very different scenarios. Someone with a head injury is very different from somebody 
who's got a foreign body in their esophagus. How do you deal with that as an emergency physician? How do you develop the resilience? How do you develop the aptitude for saying, I have no idea how today is going to unfold? Again, I, I, I always focus back on our training and our training so, does start to build on that. I like to think that if the system is designed properly, then it will support that. Now, I would say that the system has been crushed across the world recently, more so than ever before. But there are some tangible things where we break down problems. So I, you know, I'll break down a shift into several hour aliquots or chunks so that I can mentally get over each hurdle. I mean, it's one thing to build resilience, which I think is a wonderful thing. I'd love for us to spend less time, you know, backstopping our system with resilient humans and actually having a system that functions properly. So that would be that'd be my preference. But personally, what I do, I'll, I'll break down problems that I see. I use a lot of probabilistic thinking. So when a patient comes in, and we teach this a lot to help support uncertainty, we teach residency. You see a patient, you think they come in with right lower quadrant pain, and I ask them, you know, what do you think that this is? And they'll say, you know, what common thing would be appendicitis, and and maybe if it's a female, there's a you know risk of ovarian torsion or something like that. And I ask them to assign probabilities. And so if you assign a probability, like I think this is 80% appendicitis then over time, you can get better at your assessments. Meaning if you, every time you say it's 80% appendicitis and it's never appendicitis, then you can reflect back on that and you start to adjust those and you can deal with uncertainty a little bit better by, because if it's 80% appendicitis, then it's 20% something else. And it forces you to think about alternatives and then you can make better decisions. And so you, I use probabilities to make decisions. I, I break down problems when they're complex. I try and consider when I have a decision to be made, if if it's likely that I'm going to get in more information, and if it's not, then I need to go ahead and make that decision right now so that it's not weighing on my uh, on my conscience or or taking up um, cognitive bandwidth. So these are all small things over time that I've learned. I mean, we learn efficiencies and anybody that works in any system learns efficiencies that are inherent and you can create shortcuts, have little heuristics that work along the way. And and then I will, a key thing, and I mentioned earlier, is debriefing and I'll debrief myself. I'll reflect on things that have happened and I'll, and I'll vet things through colleagues because then I can learn and I can get better. And I ask people how they do things and I run things by other colleagues. And, you know, I think all of us do this in medicine. And this is our, as if you're a resident or a registrar or whatever, whatever you refer trainees as, you get that opportunity for free. We don't get that as staff physicians anymore. We lose that a little bit, even when you work in a team environment. So these are all micro skills, I think, that I hope that I've acquired or am acquiring over my career that has made my job easier. I think looking back, I'm less stressed 
now on a shift than I was when I started as a staff now eight years ago. What stresses me is now how the system interacts with me or I interact with the system or I, you know, my place in the system. And that, I mean that with like, how do you deal with wait times? How do you deal with angry patients? How do you deal with no space for patients? All of those things that aren't really, I, I wasn't taught that. And I don't fault anybody for that. That just was more of a pro- is more of a problem now than it was 15 years ago. You're listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. You're very generous in saying you don't fault anyone for that, but I can tell you that in medical schools, I'm sure this is your experience as well, this was never a lecture on how do you manage wait times, how do you manage the perception of the patient who sees staff wandering in and out of the back room looking like they're not doing very much, even though they are, and still having to wait two, three, four, eight hours to see a doctor and thinking that they're being kept waiting on purpose. So how do you? How do you deal with somebody who their last action in the emergency department is to spit at you? Yeah, I mean, that, that's tough, and that gets more difficult every day just in terms of the volume of things that that happens. I think that happens to healthcare providers. I don't think, certainly I don't take the brunt of it as a staff physician. Our nurses, our clericals, our our respiratory therapists, everybody else I think does probably take that more than staff physicians. I think gender also plays a role, you know, as as a male in in this environment, I, I I'm sure, and I know this. I mean, my wife is a physician. I think her experience is very different than mine. So I'm I'm not blind to that. I think I'm blind to the experience, but I'm not blind to how it impacts others. So I, I you know, I, I should be humbled, and and I would I would be ignorant for me to start commenting on like how difficult that can be. What I do really try and encourage is a radical transparency to people in their weight. So I'm very big proponent. And that term, you know, Ray Dalio, who's a, a large investor, actually, he's in the business world, uses that term, and that's how he kind of builds his companies. But I'm just of the opinion over the last few years, being covert and hiding things in the long run does not serve us well. And, and yes, you might have a bit of a confrontation in the, in the moment that you disclose what's happening, but with honesty and, and radical transparency about wait times, here's what's happening, here's why you're waiting, and being honest and human about that. I think that that has served me well. So we will see patients. So like, how long's the wait? And some people will, some colleagues will say, well, I can't tell you the wait time. And, and I get where they're coming from because they don't want to be wrong. At the same time, if we look at the waiting experience and the psychology of that, it's very, very challenging to be a person waiting and not know how long. People will actually wait and rate their waiting experience longer, a better for a longer wait that they know is going to be long than a shorter wait that they don't know how long it is. And so, you know, I've, I, we spend 
time working and and studying this and and doing research on this kind of thing. And so I'm very much of the opinion that taking a human-centered or patient-centered approach on these types of things is the best avenue. It doesn't, maybe if the infrastructure isn't there, it doesn't lend itself to always the best outcome immediately, but long-term, I think it's the best outcomes. So I will tell patients, likely that you're going to wait three hours, but there is a chance, you know, five, 10% chance that it might be four or five hours and here's why, and here's what's happening. And you just hope that people can understand that. And you try and make their wait as comfortable as possible and help them appreciate what else is happening. And that when people know that other people are working hard, it does calm things, right? I mean, if people see people sitting around, that's challenging. But but these are things that I think we can do better in, in healthcare, I think in the emergency departments, and really trying to minimize uncertainty and realize that patients, not only are they waiting, it's one thing to wait for, you know, fast food, you're hungry a bit, you know, it's another or airline, you're trying to get to, you know, your next beautiful vacation. It's another thing when you're in pain, when you're you know, whether when you're worried about something, when you're anxious about a diagnosis or you think you might be having a heart attack or all of these, now it amplifies any what might you might rate of a five out of 10 awful weight. It now becomes 10 out of 10, uh, even just because of the circumstances. And I, I've become more aware of that. I, I'm not perfect at that, but I do understand where people are coming from. I've watched it now long enough, unfortunately. And I think that these understanding, making sure people are are aware of what's happening around them, I think does, does yield dividends over the long term. I want to explore that a little bit more with you in the sense that we get this in primary care as well, that you've got the people at the front desk saying there isn't an appointment, your results have been delayed or whatever other inconvenience that we all suffer because of the way the system operates. Probably the most important people in those situations, apart from the person who's making the decision about the therapy for that patient, are the people who deal with the patient at the front desk. Because if they deal with that respectfully, they deal with that sensitively, it makes your work much easier. Because as you say, Nine times out of ten, the right abdominal pain is going to turn out to be appendicitis. But there are occasions when it can be something very different and you want the patient to feel comfortable enough to give the information they need to give in order to make your life easier and make that diagnosis a lot easier to make. We don't train front-of-house staff quite the same way. And often, particularly in primary care, the person happens to be have worked in retail or some other environment and is drafted in because all they've got to do is take the name of the person and indicate that they've arrived. But there is a greater skill than that. Do you want to comment on that from your experience of years of working in this environment? Oh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, our best clerical staff, our admin staff, I mean, they're excellent with people. Ultimately, medicine is a a people industry. 
at least at least in in primary care, at least in general, uh, you know, as an in, as a as a generalist. I mean, you know, I think radiologists may not say it's a people industry, but it, it's about people and it's about managing people. And so, understanding the psychology of people and why they may get upset and how to communicate and where to be honest and 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 provide transparent thoughts and perspectives. We certainly see that with our, our best clerical staff are just outstanding in de-escalation and taking a, a pause, listening to the person, and then trying to provide them one that that they understand what they what they're going through or you know understand trying to at least at least appreciate that that the wait is long or that that it might be challenging and acknowledging that and then moving to some direction providing people with a few things that they can you know that are people went i mean the biggest thing is this lack of control over a situation right you lose control over your own health because that's what's happening you're now you're now giving your health over to somebody else you're already you're in pain so you're frustrated or there's uncertainty or there's there, there's nervousness anxiety all of those things and you're relying on someone else to to make you better or to figure things out it requires a lot of trust and and so acknowledging that i think is is key and i mean we've seen that done well i've certainly seen that not done you know the confrontational strategy which i'll be honest i i think i have that down pat i try not to do that one so much but i've certainly seen others take wonderful approaches and be they listen they hear what somebody's saying and then they try and give them tangible important information that can kind of keep them grounded and help them understand what's what's going on around them but it, it, I mean, all of medicine is is about people and communication. I mean, that's just that's ninety percent of it. I mean, ten percent is twenty percent is the the medicine. But the vast majority of this is how do you communicate about what's happening and someone's health that's highly complex to people that haven't studied this for many years. It's a fascinating industry and and world to live in. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. A lot of the time you walk into any hospital environment, but particularly the emergency department and possibly in other waiting rooms, and it's like sitting at a bus depot. You've got those lines of plus bucket seats You've got people who look like they've been waiting for a long time. It's not particularly comfortable. There's nowhere to get a decent meal. You go into the vending machine, it may or may not be working. You're just tired of eating chips all day. You want to lie down. There's nowhere to lie down. There's someone screaming in the corner. There's someone yelling at the receptionist. it's, It's not a happy place. And then at back end, you've got people who are working extremely hard to make the system work, deliver its promise. And you're negotiating with administrators who say, well, there are no beds available. You've got someone who's in the department who can't be sent home but needs to go into a a hospital bed, but there isn't one available. 
and you know that there are a hundred people still waiting in the waiting room. Now, you're in that environment a lot. Three things, three thoughts that occur to you that could make that experience a little more human for our patients. What would they be? Boy, only three. Well, I think there's many. I think some of them are short-term and some are long-term, but I think you know, I love I love the idea of providing people with wait times. I think it's just something that we now have kind of embraced in other industries. You know, when you when you wait on a telephone line now these days, they'll often say there's four more people in front of you or 10 more minutes of your wait. It, it just makes that wait so much easier. And, you know, you may bracket that with a range, whatever that might be, or an estimation or a 75% likelihood of, you know, and I get it. I mean, healthcare isn't quite the same. And, you know, those who will push back against wait times will say, well, we can't be as accurate as being in line for a call center. Okay, fine. I don't think that means we shouldn't try. I think if we can put people on the moon, I think we can somewhat accurately get to predicting when you're going to be seen by a physician in, a, in an environment uh, or a nurse or whatever it might be, whatever you're waiting for. I think that we can spend a bit more time talking to patients about what, how we actually design a space. And so this is an area that I've become particularly interested in is healthcare design. The stuff that we've kind of learned, and I do this as sort of in an academic space as well, is really understanding what it's like to be a patient. And for for as long as, I mean, as certainly as long as I've been in healthcare, and I think well before I have, the design of healthcare spaces have not involved the patient, which is a fascinating, I mean, m- most of healthcare hasn't involved patients in terms of designing anything that may, meets their needs. You know, we wouldn't design a car without having a driver tested and, and be a part of that process. And yet, very rarely um, do we design waiting rooms, waiting processes, care processes, anything like that with the patient involved in it. We think about them as clinicians or as architects, as designers, as any of these types of people, but involving them to understand what it is like, I think is one of the biggest pitfalls that that we have done as a in the in the design of healthcare delivery. And so what would that mean? I don't know. I don't know that I know what that actually would translate to, but I think asking people what is their experience and not immediately jumping to solution. We're so solution oriented in healthcare that we spend very little time actually understanding the problem. And we don't need to spend years because I think it's easy enough to get there. We often come up with solutions that are lateral to the problem. And so if we understand humans better, if we understand people and we listen to them about and, and not just ask them how to fix it, but to just say, what, you know, what was your experience? Then I think we can get a better waiting experience. I don't know. I don't know what it's like to lie on a stretcher for 50 hours waiting to be seen. I, I personally can't. I don't know that. I've never experienced that. I've seen it, unfortunately, on, honestly, on, on a daily basis. So I kind of get it, but I don't fully understand it. And so really thinking about how can we change this idea of you come in, you sit and you just wait and you hope to something that's much more 
leverages a lot of the, the, the psychological knowledge about how people think and how do we know how people wait and experience weights and moving people along and, you know, moving from one part of the process to another, physically moving them, giving them updates, giving them small pieces to kind of move forward, small things that are happening to them. I think all of these types of strategies really would be, would be key. You know, patient navigators, how do, how do those interact? And, and I think people don't really understand what happens when they come to an emergency department. And I can speak specifically to that. I think people, if you come to the same family physician office every time, you kind of get it. But you may visit an emergency department once or twice in your life, hopefully. Many will visit more and they kind of understand the process better, but many don't. And so it's those few that 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 large group that doesn't that you know becomes pretty frustrating. And so how can we provide, you know, you go to an airport and you know exactly what to expect. You know, you it, you can put me in any airport in any language anywhere in the world, and I'm pretty certain. Nine times out of 10, I'm going to find my luggage. I'm going to get off the plane. I'm going to find my luggage. and I'm going to be able to find a taxi or a place, a train, whatever it might be, my next destination. That's not the case in, in, a, health, in a healthcare environment, particularly in an emergency department. The Journal of Health Design. Fostering collaboration. Amplifying the voice of health advocates. Growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. You've given me two I've written down. One is wait times, sharing wait times with patients. The second is redesigning the space with reference to patients. You haven't given me a third, but I want to offer you a third and see what you think about this. I just wonder whether it might be possible to have a patient triaged in the emergency department and then given a time that appears on an app that says you don't have to wait in this space while we manage all the other cases that are before you but here is a time give or take half an hour when you are likely to be seen so as soon as that happens we will signal you to say you're within half an hour or an hour of your appointment you may now come to the emergency department where it's not going to be possible to redesign a space radically to make it as comfortable as your living room so it could be eight hours in some awful situations can be eight hours or 12 hours Rather than spending that time sitting here, how about you go home? How does that grab you as a potential solution? What I would take from that is the principle of this idea that we must follow the traditional waiting style, put, putting people in a place, and then, then we grab them for their, their next bit of care delivery. The fact that we aren't willing or haven't really decided to think outside that box, I think is, a, is a, a missed opportunity. So what I would say is, I don't know that, I love that answer. I think technology in a weight environment should definitely be leveraged. It's not in our environment. I'm, I suspect it's probably not much better anywhere else in the world. So yes, I love the idea of integrating technology, pushing notifications, all of these kinds of things. I, I would then go back and say, we should, one, involve patients in that process. Like, maybe that's not a good idea. I don't know. 
The other thing is, is we should test it. And so this idea that all we do in healthcare is we implement. And implement, in my mind and what I've observed, means permanence. And permanence means no change after that. So someone comes up with an idea around a boardroom table, they drop it in, boom, let's go with it. What I would say is, great, let's take that idea and pilot it. So I'm a big proponent of using that term piloting, or you know, we use simulation to simulate these things, to test it. And then we can see, do people like it? Does it work? What, what are the unintended consequences? What is the second order thinking that occurs here? Like, what did we not think about? Maybe there's going to be some horrendous downstream effects of that. I don't know, but we shouldn't just jump on that. We should explore it, trial it, and then seek feedback from patients and and clinicians. And people get bogged down with, we must have perfect opinions. Well, we don't need that, but we just need, we can rapidly collect feedback. And if you build in that process, then then I think over time it will save time and money. In the short term, yeah, it might take you know there's an upfront investment to most good ideas, and you just need to test things. So I'm a big fan of testing, which is you know part of my role is, I guess my other area of interest is in simulation. So I would say I love the idea. Where did we come? Where did it come from? Does it meet the the needs of the patient? Maybe let's hear from them and then let's test it. Andrew, it's been a joy spending time with you. Thank you for your care of your patients. Above all else, thank you for that. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your energy. And thank you for the innovative spirit with which you do your work. I'll let you get on with your evening. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure and, you know, a great conversation. Thanks. The Health Design Podcast. Serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.